Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans, reporting for ConnectingVets.com, the website dedicated to the military news and the veteran lifestyle. And I'm your host, Navy vet Phil Briggs. Now, today's show is going to feature a veteran who's unlike most veterans I've ever interviewed. In fact, he's unlike most veterans that have ever even been on this show because he's known already by millions of Americans for a variety of different roles. He was practically raised to be a fighter, learning from some of the most elite fighters in the country before UFC and MMA was even a big deal. He was doing it on sweaty gym floors and nasty gyms that smelled like urine and beer, and then it became almost a national pastime. He would go on to become a UFC champ. But along that road, he would also serve as a Green Beret, sniper, and eventually find himself as a television host, and founder of the nonprofit Save Our Allies, which provides security awareness, precision extraction, and expeditionary medicine in Ukraine right now. He's also made national news and to some degree controversy by jumping into the mix to assist the evacuation of thousands of Afghan refugees in August of 2021 after our exit from Afghanistan via the Hamid Karzai International Airport. And his upcoming memoir, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting UFC warriors, the Taliban, and myself, is already one of the top-selling books in the country. So it's my pleasure to introduce Army veteran, all-around badass, Tim Kennedy. What's up, man? What's up? How are you? Yeah, man. I hope I nailed just about all of it there, but your book kind of nails it. And can I just start off by saying um, your book was not what I expected in this day and age of vet bros out there that are doing all these like inspirational things, you know, like here's how you should work out. Here's how you should train. You should get up at four in the morning. I expected this to be just full of like adages and profound life advice. And (laughs) the first seven chapters was just like, dude, you were a wreck. I'm even surprised you made it into the army as undisciplined as you were. Thinking back, walking into the recruiter's office, you know, that recruiter being like, dude, I don't know what to do with you. You know, <laughs> like I can't flush you down the toilet. You're too big of a turd. So, uh, I, ah, so yeah, you're totally right. Th- those th- there's, there's a level of failure and vulnerability and transparency in, in this book that is, has not been common, but I, I think is so direly needed and, and so desperately, um, 
necessary for this generation's men. Yeah, I was going to say, is that kind of what the point was to reveal all this rather than just giving life advice, uh, you know, a la Goggins or Jocko or all the, you know, big contemporary names of veteran motivation that America is 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 really getting some good stuff from. Was your motivation to just say, hey, OK, learn from what I did wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So I just I just got done teaching jujitsu and um, in that hour class. You know, I go in and I, I shot two, I only taught two different techniques. And then we went and I, we drilled, we, I mean, we drilled relentlessly over and over and over and over again, the same technique 400 times, you know, and, and guys are asking like, Oh, should I, should I throw my chest out this way? Should I turn my hips over? How do I get the sit out? And, uh, and I don't answer them. You know, they learn from their own mistakes or they watch me do it and they see when I do it wrong and it doesn't work and I do it right and it does work. So in that kind of methodology, in that philosophy of, of how, to, how, to, how do I inspire people, do I give them inspirational adages or do I go out and just live and show them my failures, my struggles, and then you know they realize that I'm just like them and they fail just as often as I fail and I struggle just as often as they struggle. Uh, so like, let's just get back up and keep going. Hmm. Very cool. I kind of likened it to my wife this morning and I was like, what I expected to be this motivational rah, rah, rah book, which I might've even had a little bit of an issue with. Cause I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a badass. I'm not a physical specimen of, of immortality here. Um, I was pleased to see that it was just about, you know, a guy that grew up making a hell of a ton of mistakes as if we could look, you know, kind of behind Superman and realize like, he's just sort of a jacked up dude that, that has made some right dedicated disciplined moves to stay in the game uh let's burn through a couple of the bullet points of the early years uh my notes say crazy kid man you were insane the the book opens up with like military tactics and you're hunting down a high value target and like you've got you know your weapons and the wedge formation and you're flushing out this person or you're or you're going to hunt this guy only to find out that this scary charles manson jesus looking guy jumps out of a pot field at you you drop your weapons a la sticks and this isn't ranger battalion it's the creekside gang you're 11 year old kids hunting some local guy on the loose and i was like Man, growing up in California like that, you were absolutely nuts. At 11 years old, you wanted to go literally find somebody that the law was looking for. So it's, it's really hard in, in this like 2022 helicopter parenting to explain what it was like in the 80s, you know, where a, a boomer raised this Gen X and, uh, you know, like we would get back from school, we'd do our homework and we would be pushed outside. My mom would lock the door and we couldn't come back to our house until the sun set. That's it. You know, like whatever happens, we just had to keep our blood in our bodies and she would occasionally hose us off. And in uh, that specific instance, a guy, a, a, a felon mental health, um, escapee from the, the Atascadero mental health hospital escaped and the whole entire County was looking for this guy. So me and my friends went and grabbed sticks and went to patrol the Creek to see if he was, if he was down there. And lo and behold, he was Phil. One of the things that you left out uh, in explaining what happened there was the piss running down my leg when I finally saw him. So yeah, that was yeah. real. 
And what I found even more amazing, just because we're both about the same age, I remember the 80s well. You did play until the sun came, until the sun started to set, and then you had to go home for dinner. Um, you, was your dad's job. And that, I think that explains not only your ability to want to become a fighter, but want to be a safe handler of weapons, but also to want to pursue adrenaline. Because the jacket of your book says, like, you only feel alive when you're almost ready to die. And that could be so cliche. We all know guys that throw stuff around like that. But your upbringing, man, I can only imagine that had to be true from like, you know, nine years old on once you figured out that your dad was a narco cop during the Pablo Escobar cocaine war era. Open up on that a little bit. We we knew very young because my dad, I, I mean, like when you learned when the normal person learns, like if you smell smoke, get down and crawl towards the door. You know, for us, it was if the red phone in the closet rings, pick it up and read the cover story that's written on the wall, you know, like. These are very different things. When you're an eight-year-old kid and your dad is like, hey, can you go into the parking garage? There's a yellow Camaro in there. I don't have a warrant to get in that car, but I'd really like to know who owns it. Hey, eight-year-old Tim, will you go in there? Um, like these were normal. That, that, that I know this is wild, but like your dad driving home Porsches and Lamborghinis, you know, and wearing like a Hawaiian shirt underneath this like perfect cut suit. And then the very next weekend, he's wearing a wife beater with vomit and beer all over his pants. And he's trying to buy, buy meth on the corner. And I'm driving down the street and I see my dad in a wife beater and like nasty pale jeans with like poop stains on it. And my mom was like, my mom was like, don't make eye contact with him. Don't even look at him. You know? And uh, we're like, that is my dad buying dope. <laughs> you know, it's like, It was wild. And that's how I grew up. You know, a dad that stole a plane, a, cocaine from pablo escobar and then in a fast and furious move sold it to every distributor on the whole entire central coast of california and arrested every single one of them in one big swoop and not lose a single gram of cocaine and that was like a tuesday you know like that was normal <laughs> and it was a thrill to read when you when you get into the details of this book scars and stripes uh you're gonna love it but yeah growing up with your dad as a narc cop on a federal level that was even above local law enforcement, like so deep undercover at times uh, that the whole family was involved. Um, that had to bend your axle early, and I'm glad it did because it shaped you into the guy you are today. Uh, followed by a chapter called Deviant that I found interesting because this is where I said that you're not full of adages. You're just full of like the whole first half of this book is like ways you screwed up. And I feel very similar because as a radio guy, um, I've been fired from about every job I've ever had. I mean, as a morning shock jock, or I tried to be all edgy and cool, we'd get fired. I'd say something. I had one station pay two FCC fines for me before they fired me finally. Um, you know, I, I drunk at just about every station event. I, I was a mess for about a decade. And you were arguably a mess from the first time you were employed at In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Share with me a little bit about what it was like to be the fry guy and the In-N-Out Burger potato cannon. I still can't believe you didn't get arrested for this. Oh, man, I don't know how. It wasn't just like just not just the potato cannon, which we were launching potatoes over the freeway, the 101 freeway into the Kmart parking lot. But then we also got like the big, huge slingshot balloon launchers and hooked it onto the parking posts and then pulled it back like there are these steel cement parking posts and shooting potatoes up and over four lanes of the freeway into the parking lot you know they're like, I'm like yeah and like oh the cops are coming and everybody like run back inside and them trying to figure out it would you know being a police officer and pulling to the kmart parking lot to see the vandalism in the parking lot 
who would have ever thought that somebody shot a potato 400 meters over a freeway? You know, like, and, and it had to have been a kid on the back of a car, like throwing potatoes as he drove by. No, nobody would ever think about this. And, um, but you know, I still as deviant and as destructive as I was, I still knew like right and wrong, you know, and I, I was still, you know, like even, even the mob has their own weird um, semblance of morality and uh and e- even though like i was making lots of bad decisions like i still had that semblance of of morality you know and, like there's a moment where one of the girls that worked at the dry- drive through was assaulted and i mean i was like an arrow being shot out of this compound bow as i just javelined myself through out this this window and started attacking these guys like a like a spider monkey trying to rape a cat and um because it was wrong and I'm not going to let wrong happen in front of me, but I will also get fired for it. So, you know, <laughs> that's such, it's such a fun chapter. And uh, again, just shows that, yeah, you did have your code. You didn't want to see your coworker, the hot girl get, you know, a, you know, touched by some creeper at the, at the burger joint. So you jump over the counter and whoop his ass. Um, loved that. Uh, that kind of segues into fighting. And this is where I was kind of surprised. Um, you just, you know, I wrestled in high school, loved it, you know, loved a good single leg, loved the fireman's carry. If I could chin and wing a guy and just flip him and get him down. I mean, just, I, I, I loved that. And I loved my 11th grade year after I'd had some mastery at wrestling and gone to wrestling camp, like going back out into the world, knowing, Oh, okay. Fight's going to break out. You know, the boxing guys get all up in your face and start talking. And I was like, okay, great. You're giving me both your legs now. I love this. You took it to the next level and you end up training in a gym, a jujitsu, a dojo, whatever. And you come across Chuck Liddell and these Titans that would go on to define what became MMA in America. Share with me a little bit about just fighting on one of the most elite levels at only what, 17 years old. Yeah. Credit to my mom and my dad, you know, they put me in martial arts really early, you know, back to the deviants in, in an effort to like put some discipline. And uh, I, I know a lot of kids are this way. You can hear it from your parents about how, how to do the right thing. And you're of course going to ignore them, you know, but then you hear it from a peer or from a wrestling coach or, you know, a, a mar- martial art professor. And, you know, it hits, it hits you different. They're saying the same thing. So my parents put me in martial arts very early. I did Shotokan karate. I did um, Taekwondo. And then I did uh, um, Japanese jiu-jitsu. So, and by the time I got to Japanese jiu-jitsu, I had already been wrestling a little bit. And I had been doing marginally well. My first wrestling tournament, I got pinned in 30 seconds in a single elimination tournament. And I was, I was embarrassed and I was humiliated and those are moments that, you know, this generation, I, I pity them so much as both hands. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen in wrestling. Thank, thank goodness. You know, but like you get participation trophies and two hands get raised instead of one, you know, but being a 10 year old and standing there and, you know, going to a tournament and being at the tournament for all of 30 minutes, like that, that hits you different. You know, that, that sucks. And uh, the shame of look, not being able to even look over at my father. Cause I was so worried that he was humiliated. So, that kind of regiment of keeping me in martial arts kept me going and, uh, you know, trying to be, in, be improved. So I got embarrassed less. And, um, then I thought it was a big deal in jujitsu until, you know, Jake Shields and Chuck Liddell show up. And, uh, and I learned that there's an entire another level and I was the big fish in a little pond 
And then when like a big fish came to what actually was an idiot small fish that was completely incapable of anything, uh, I, I knew that I needed to, you know, go and continue to improve. And that's where I ended up was with at the pit at slow kickboxing. Mm, the pit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the way you actually describe not only the sights and the events that happened, but the smells, I mean, the fact that it smelled of body odor, sweat and beer. And it was a bunch of frat boys on Friday night, watching you guys just basically wrestle till, you know, the death. I mean, yeah. not only really death, but it was just watching guys just bludgeon each other. Um, I'm surprised looking at you, your face is not more mangled because every one of these, I mean, I guess if I got close, I could probably tell, but you have all your teeth. Um, just the descriptions of how you got your ass whooped by these guys. And you're an 18 year old kid, but that's not your entry point into professional fighting. Oddly enough, you wanted to be a cop. You wanted to be a firefighter. I kind of like how you made this not a bunch of adages like get up at four in the morning, do more than you think you can never quit achieving, never quit giving, give it your 110% is only 50%, you know, like those kinds of cliches. Nah, you walk us through what it's like to be an EMT. Then you walk us what it's like to be a firefighter. And then you walk us through what it's like to be Tim Kennedy with like no sense and you challenge every damn boss and you get fired from just about everything. Yeah. The uh, youth, you know, the ego and the invincibility of young men, you know, testosterone just running through your veins. Um, and I, you know, I get asked like, hey, what would you do if you got to go back and talk to 18 year old Tim Kennedy? And what would you say? You know, I'm like, I wouldn't say anything. I would kick him in the dick and walk away, you know, because like. <laughs> that version of me needed to learn that way. You know, I, I had to be fired. I had to be humiliated. I had to be, you know, like e even when I got to special forces and I was an absolute prick and my whole entire team goes and thumps me up. I'm still like on my fours, looking at my own blood and saliva pooling into this little soup on the ground. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, it still took 12 of them to beat my ass. Like I was still that stupid to not learn how, what what a simple lesson was being taught to me so like the 20 20 year old version of myself where you know like the 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 captain walks up and he's like tim you could have gotten everybody hurt you know you could have gotten hurt back there which would have made the situation so much worse and instead i was like no bro I, i'm the one that fixed this i'm the one that solved this not listening to the words that he was saying and the wisdom that he was trying to impart onto me you know so you know i, I think we did like three strikes and, and you're out but in truth, there were probably about 20 strikes. Like those were the three write-ups that um, went into my file where ultimately they're like, all right, man, you got to move on. But in truth, there was like, you know, poor Tom Way and uh, Agassin and um, Dave, those, those, those four guys, like they, I don't know what, how they kept me out of trouble. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Guys. No, I love it. I absolutely love it. And to give just a little bit of detail on the tease here about these chapters, like there's one part where like there's a car accident, the car's down a ravine. It's about 40 foot descent. They're all trying to figure out how to get the ropes and the gear and this high tech precision equipment to get this car and the people out. And young Tim Kennedy's like, well, I grew up climbing. I was in the Creekside gang. I'm tough as nails. I'm a, you know, I got my beat. I got my ass beat by Chuck Liddell. I, I, I'm tough. I can take anything. And you just scale your scurry, your little butt 
down there and then you get them out. You probably save a life in doing so. But your constant thing is like you think, you know, better. You think, you know, more efficiently. You even tried to, like, take a final exam or something in the police academy. <laughs> and you said that, like, you redid the operational rules because yours were more efficient. It's interesting. You never end these stories with any sort of wisdom. You just sort of like, OK, and that's what happened. You leave for the reader to kind of pull out why Tim was dumb. Yeah, I read a lot. And um, I, I the, nothing irritates me more. Um, one of my favorite Star Wars movies is New Hope, right? Uh, at the very end of the movie, Darth Vader comes on. They have the plans to the Death Star. They run the ship. You know, Darth Vader comes aboard. And he's just hacking everybody. And uh, they're like, go, go, go. They hand the plans off and the, 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 the spaceship jettisons. And they could have ended it right there because we know what that, that ship is. That's Princess, Leia's, that's Princess Leia's ship. But instead, they add 30 more seconds and they walk in and they say, what is this? And she says, it's a new hope. And you're like, ah, that's terrible. You know, and like you read this amazing chapter of this person talking about all this pain, all of this suffering and all of this struggle, you know, and you've like, you've surmised in your mind, the, like your understanding of, of, of what that person did to survive this. And then they summarize it in the gayest, most lame one sentence that they put at the end of the book. And you're like, what? Like, first of all, you insulted me. And second, like you undermined everything that you just said and and all of the wisdom that you put in this beautiful chapter. So like, I, I think people are smart and um, I'm not going to spoon feed them truth. And I think that truth is going to be different for every single person. You know, Phil and Greg, you guys are going to read one of those chapters and you're going to relate to different stories in those chapters, but you're both going to get the same takeaway from it is like, Tim is stupid. One that we could, with that, we agree on. And two is like, man, hard work and discipline really paid off in this situation. And, and um, I don't know how he's not dead. Yes. And I mean, the things I've even left out from stealing a drug dealing brother's car to, um, you know, all these other things, how you're not dead is amazing, but I appreciate you not ending every damn thing with a cliche as evidenced by your analogy there to star Wars. Um, I'll skip over this uh, for sake of time, but I just want to say that uh, the chapter, the fall and a suicidal swim, not necessarily meant to be suicide, like in a grandiose kind of way, but like you Technically, I think the chapter before that could have been called Deviance 2 because, like, you become a dad twice, two different ladies at a very self loathing time in your life, and you are acting out all the wrong ways. And you go for this swim in the cold California surf, butt naked, and um, you just don't even know if you want to come back. I mean, picked up by the Coast Guard in the ocean. It was that was just so telling. And Again, we're talking to Green Beret veteran and all-around UFC champion badass Tim Kennedy. Um, I want to jump into now the part about the Green Berets and uh, military, which is kind of what we share in common. And that's all I'm going to say, because that's literally where it ends. You were training to be an elite guy and entered on this 18 X-ray program, which at the time, right after 9-11, a few years after 9-11, we needed to um, channel more elite warfighters into the battle space and 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 to crank them out quicker we started expanding the net so to speak and not looking for prior enlisted not looking for people that had served four to six years already uh they expanded it to include include elite athletes 
And somehow, yeah. some way, Tim Kennedy there with the fighting background, you know, you're there, you go in with the 18 x-ray programs and all these elite athletes to either end up a ranger or SF. And I'm just going to ask you to expand on toes on the line. I can't believe week. I can't believe you weren't booted week one for what happened after you stood up for the weaker blonde kid toes on the line. Share with me a little bit about the drunken DI and how you just dehumanized everybody during training. Oh man. Uh, Again, you know, like, so you you go back to four-year-old Tim Kennedy at North County Christian school and um, you know, Laura, just got a new haircut. Her mom did her dirty, put a bowl under her head and just like clipped around. And, uh, and one of the boys there, Oh, Laura, you look like a boy, boy, you know, Laura's a boy. And, uh, and I was like, don't talk, don't talk to my girl like that. You know? So I, I follow him up. I punch him in the mouth. I shove him off. You know, he breaks his arm when he falls off the playscape, you know, with a bloody lip and I get spanked for like the 20th time that, that year in school before they tell me I'm not allowed back to first grade. Um, you know, then you fast forward where I'm in basic training, you know, well, even before that it's nine 11, I'm sitting there and I'm watching Americans look back into a building and then look down the front of the building and decide if they want to burn alive or do they want to jump to their death? Remember, like, I, I'm, you know, Phil, I'm sure you remember, like, I was so angry. I was so mad. And, like, the justice in me and the, the anti-bully in me, like, I, I didn't know what to do with all of that hate and rage and anger. And I wanted to do something. Um, so, like, that, that's, that's a big passion in me is to protect those that can't fight for themselves and protect themselves. So when I'm in basic training, you know, the – the class before us had a bunch of um, what we're going to be now is RASP, like the, the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. Uh, back then, they were RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program. So they're eight, they were 11 Bravos that would go and be selected to go to, to Ranger Regiment. And um, the class, my whole entire bay were, was all 18 x-rays. So this, our, whole, our whole entire platoon were all hopeful green berets and uh and in comes these these kids from the prior class my drill instructor was a former ranger regiment guy and um he has these kids that are that are kind of you know he's their pseudo mentor and um you know he i think he had some some problems wanting to be at war but he's at you know he's at he's he's on the path instead he doesn't want to be there that's for sure and um, they're drinking and all of us online, they start like, hey, you have to be tough. You have to be hard. You have, you're, you know, you're going to be going to war. You guys are going to have to, you know, like fight your enemy and maybe even have to kill them. Are you capable of it? And they go to this kind of frail, um, blonde, young, younger kid. And uh, they start like shark attacking him. You know, like they're making fun of him. And, and ultimately, I'm just like, hey, knock it off. Um, and they all come over here and and like – it, el- it escalates to me having to fight these three guys. And, um, and, I, and I say three because the, the three guys that I put on the ground, I do it really, really fast, and it kind of just ends the fight. Um, but as, as much as, as, as great of a moment as it looks, how naive am I to, to like be fighting in front of my, my whole entire team? And the drill, sergeant, the drill instructor ended up not being wrong. 
you know, that, that young kid ended up not making it, you know, he didn't even pass airborne school. So, um, you know, I know that hazing's dangerous and it's wrong. Uh, but in, in a war fighting America, you know, in a, in a 2003, 2002 world where we, we, every single person that graduates goes to war and we are two years in what becomes a 20 year war. It is a, it is a very different thing. And, uh, yeah. I just want to say that, you know, in boot camp, I could have never imagined stepping that way. And I think for context, people have to understand that like you guys were easy to hate because 18 x-rays, you know, most people wait years for their shot at SF or Ranger battalion. And then here come you Hollywood playboy athletes, get your own, you know, you get your own company division there to get trained and they're going to sort out these highly athletic individuals to see which ones can actually become soldiers, which one can actually become elite fighting forces, but <laughs> step out day, whatever it was in that first week and just knock three dudes out. I'm like, yeah, you put a target on your back for sure. Kennedy, um, yeah. share with me a little bit about what that felt like in the gig pit. So before you got to go to special forces selection, if you were an 18 x-ray, you would go to this course called SOPC, special operations preparations course. And the point of SOPC was to prepare you for selection. That, that was the intent. That was the end state. Whatever officer developed that program, his goal was to better prepare 18 x-rays for selection. So we had a higher um, selection rate. What it actually was, wasn't a tritter. Like the goal of the NCOs there was to cut the fat and burn the fat off everybody that came in. And, uh, you know, it was, we PT'd twice a day. Um, we, we rucked, we ran, uh, we got smoked and the, the gig pit was their, their way, their delivery system to add fatigue, um, disease, um, uh, really just uncomfortability to every, every element of my life. Uh, you know, like all of our uniforms were dirty all of the time. Our bay was dirty all of the time. We spent all of our time cleaning and washing and hygiene. Cause like, if you know, you had a scrape on your knee or you had a rash from your last ruck run, or you had an open blister and you got in that water, you were going to get, a, you were going to get an infection. So like you had to be so disciplined in taking care of yourself and, um, you know, like we went through bottles of hydrogen peroxide and alcohol and, uh, you know, like super glue closing up wounds to try to stay healthy so we could go and go to selection healthy. And the gig fit, as you described in the book, was like basically a swampy, low lying area, marshy area that had been dug out and there was a a bridge kind of thing over it that the NCOs or that the commanding guys there would stand on and they'd send you down into the pit. And as you had to stand in this pit, the water wasn't thin like water. It was ooze. It was like petroleum and it was filled with pee and spit and fuel and any manner of gross funk that grows in a swamp. And it would just eventually get to your skin and then you'd have 90 seconds to run from the pit to the barracks get changed in clean clothes and come back i can't believe you didn't quit right there um let's fast forward past all the other trainings and everything you become a weapons expert and you get to uh deployment 
you're in Iraq. They're going on direct action missions. You go on a few, you finally get in the fight. You're finally doing what you've been trained to do. And God blessed with the ability to do so. And you at one point come at your, come at your CEO or your first sergeant or whoever it was and call him out and say that last raid, you didn't take me. I'm your best guy. And he just simply says, okay, meet me in the hangar. So he, t- he says, go grab your gloves and let's, let's go talk about this. So I was like, Oh bro, you know, like I'm dur- yeah, during, during, um, as soon as I got out of basic training, I went back and started training in martial arts. I started fighting again. I started training at team rock in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, I'd already picked up a couple of, uh, a couple of fights. And, uh, so now as a green beret, I'm still a professional athlete now fighting on the side, kind of moonlighting. And uh, he's like, Hey, go grab your gloves. We, we're going to talk about, you know, why I didn't bring you on this mission and why you're not being, you know, a good NCO. And like what I should have been doing was, um, headspace and timing on the, on the 50 cal, making sure all of the fills on the radios were good, making sure that I, my speed bag was, was plussed up, you know, topping off all the magazines, making sure the fuel and checking all, like I should have just been nonstop PCCs, PCIs, you know, but instead I was just this wallowing pathetic little petulant child and um when he gets back i'm like ah yeah i'm gonna show these guys what's up and why they should take me and i walk down to the t- into the tent and the whole entire team is there and they all have their gloves so i i start fighting them and i you know i, I scuff them up about i get through about eight of them and then nine it's pretty competitive and then 10 it's not so competitive and then 11 I'm getting it. I'm getting it dished off by by Shane Thompson, who is who is a good boxer and a Golden Glove boxer, and and he starts beating me up. And then I get to my team sergeant, and he just beats the brakes off me. And then I go through the team again, and uh, and then they all beat me, just one after another, after another, after another. And I'm laying on my fours, you know, and, and he just gets down there, and uh, John does, and he very quietly just says, "I don't want to have to talk about this again." And, um, and the, you know, this is another one of those moments where I could have been this, this great human and been like, Roger Sargent, you know, like, got it. I'm going to be a team player. Instead, I'm just like, man, yeah, but it took all of you to beat me, you know? And, like, and it was, it was such, such, it's such a dangerous egotistical existence at this point. And I'm still not learning, you know, I'm learning, but I'm not learning fast enough. You know, I'm God dumb. And I want you to know, though, that in writing that the purpose was fulfilled. Um, I did get it because I kept waiting in this book for this thing to again, to again, get all rah, 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 be like me. Don't be like you. You suck. I'm great. Follow my lead and, you know, forget the haters. And, 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 and it never got there. I just kept thinking, God, Tim Kennedy just doesn't get it. And he just in his own way. And, and in a way I'm like, man, how many times have I done it? The circumstances were always different. Yours was about elite tactical training and being fit and being a war fighter. Mine was about, you know, not being drunk and high constantly, but the same demon, the same thing was our heads. We refused to take a lesson from the ass kickings life was giving us. I think you finally got it. And I'll, I'll just speed through the Valley of Death chapters. The Valley of Death is basically like your uh, assignment in Afghanistan. And it 
documents um, a resupply mission or, or, or the greater view of what it was like to be on one of these resupply missions, um, i.e. a convoy of up-armored vehicles getting ready to resupply a forward operating base. And for the people listening that don't understand how dangerous this can be, the further into a war zone you go and make these fobs, the more dangerous it gets because you're just surrounded by Taliban. And this is at the height of our fight in Afghanistan. Um, the resupply mission to, uh, was it FOB Anaconda? Can I just ask, the, the war fighting, by the way, that you describe in this, the firefights is, I mean, it's every war movie you've ever seen in even greater detail, again, written with the smells and it's just riveting. Um, so I'll say that you did it justice in the descriptions, but as a guy that didn't see that end of the sword, can I just ask, why the hell did the military even put bases like that in valleys? I mean, I get you can't drop ship. You, you, you can't fly over a valley where the enemy has the higher ground because they'll shoot your planes down. And I get you can't drop stuff out of a parachute because if it misses the drop zone, you've just lost all the assets you've dropped off. But why in the hell do we have the bases out there in the first place? If we have air traffic control that can light up the ridges and light up the high ground from air support, why in the hell did the army, why in your estimation did we even fight like that with a fob in a valley in an unreachable part of the country? That's a good question, Phil. The, 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 the truth is it's the mindset and the approach to war fighting. So the soft approach – so if you, you, you're, you're beautifully thinking like you're reading the book Art of War by Sun Tzu. Like I'm going to put my beast in the strategic position that's geographically giving me every ad, advantage. But flip the script a little bit and think about the special operations model. So the soft model is that we do everything by, with, and through the community. We do everything by, with, and through our allied forces. We, do, we advise, we assist, and we accompany those in, the, in a triple A mission, the by within through of the soft model, I have to be co-located with the center of gravity. The center of gravity for most communities is not up on the ridge lines. That's the strategic position for the military. The center of gravity is where the people are. It's where the water is. It's where the food is. And so for me to be able to um, understand a culture, for me to be able to fight an ideology that is dangerous, for me to combat these, these philosophies of um, radical Islam, I have to be with people. I have to be, you know, taking care of their goats. And, you know, I have to be able to give immunizations to children's at schools. I have to be able to, um, you know, show them how to use a three ring binder, you know, how to, how to put a, a pen to paper. And, but I can't do that on top of a strategic important position on top of a mountaintop. I have to be down there with them. And, uh, and, and, and while, and why that, that, that is a dangerous place to be, that is the place to be. Well said, because I think what you just also defined, there was a the difference between like Rangers and Green Berets. You know, people think, you know, in the movies, it all looks like door kicking and explosions and guns. But really, uh, the Green Beret model is to insert yourself and oftentimes be with a culture, be with a community for years. And, you know, they bring with them interpreters, they bring with them cultural affairs professionals, they bring with them spooks from the CIA. I mean, they bring with them all these different kinds of things because you do have to live and eat with them. Um, I didn't think about its application towards the mission there. Again, this chapter, The Valley of Death, is gripping. It describes this firefight in such detail, and I can't even imagine what it was like to have to look back down whatever 60 yards from where 
an MRAP in front of you is just flipped up on top of your vehicle. Your only way out of the kill zone is going in reverse uphill and then to look back down and see that there's dudes down there that need help. This is my question. It's not why you ran to go help your allies that were suffering. It's not why you ran to go assist them through a haze of bullets and smoke and dust. But what blows me away is that like along this convoy, from, di- from the minute it started, you got guys sabotaging you from inside. Ra- drivers putting screwdrivers through radiators so they overheat. You got drivers radioing the Taliban because although they claim they're assisting us, they're also Taliban. And you would risk life and limb to go save one of these guys. How could you tell who was worth saving? How could you know in a battle space where some of these Afghans were just as quick to rat you out to the Taliban that you were coming down the road? What? primal instinct or what sense made you know who was worth saving and um man nobody's asked me that and i'm really glad that you did uh and i I went to afghanistan last year to rescue um part of save our allies a group of all of our allies that we left behind um and the reason that i was so impassioned to go and do that was to answer this question um the our convoy we knew that we we're going to be driving through IEDs. We knew that we we're going to be driving through Taliban occupied villages. We knew that we were going to be ambushed. And um, guess what vehicle was in the front and who is manning that vehicle? Uh, was it the ANAs? That's right. The, the, the Afghan commandos. They chose, they volunteered to put their vehicle first to drive over every single inch so to 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 tell for me to answer how do i know which ones were good and which ones were bad how who did i know which ones were worth saving and which ones were going to stab me in the back um the ones that were putting their lives on the line every single second of the whole entire mission to try and protect the americans who were there fighting for them not it's not hard to figure out who those people were and um you know, I'm, get, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about the, like the selflessness and the bravery of those Afghan commandos to put themselves in that position every single every single moment of the day. They were proud that we were there because there were Americans fighting for Afghanistan, but those were Afghanistan fighters fighting for Americans who were fighting for them. And uh, it was really easy to know who is good and who is bad. Kind of takes us to the end of the book, but again, there's a chapter in there about why you make why like how save our allies got made, why the mission is important to help get people out of Afghanistan, and why it's important to again apply that same discipline to the fighters in Ukraine and save brothers and sisters over there that are trying to fight against uh, again a, an opposing force that is horrific and doing horrifically evil things. I guess really what I wanted to ask too, just wrapping up Afghanistan, is is you took a lot of grief. Um, around August 2021 from some of the vet community for going over there. People kind of thought it was like, a, you know, like look at Tim Kennedy showing off his brand or showing off like, you know, why, you know, he's got his logo there or whatever when he's on the tarmac or when he's posing by a plane. Um, I guess, was it fair for them to kind of throw shade your way for that? And is there any real way to save them from themselves? I have once been told that, separating the Taliban from Afghanistan is like going into Northern California and telling the people in wine country that you're here to save them from the Californians. Some of the yeah. winemakers are freaking Californians. Is there any saving them from themselves from a Taliban rule? Um, 
No, but we weren't saving them from Taliban rule. We, we were saving our allies that didn't want to live under Taliban rule. So like the, the people that we brought out, you know, the final flight, the C-17, when I finally left, we had a, a woman pass out and she fell over. Um, she fainted just from exhaustion and um, dehydration and exposure. You know, having it took her days, maybe a week to get into Kabul and then another few days for one of us to go out and find her and bring her in. So by the time she got on this plane, this woman's just busted up. And when she, when she passes out, I, I ask, I yell, hey, is there a doctor in here? Can somebody help us? And like in perfect English, uh, it just passes through the whole entire crowd. Like, is there anybody a doctor? Anybody a doctor? And 17 doctors stand up. They're like, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Perfect English. You know, um, there are engineers on that flight. There are pilots. There, they, you know, there, there were teachers and there, there were entrepreneurs and there were journalists. You know, the, these, these were people that in the 20 years of our, you know, of our, I'll say occupation of Afghanistan, they have fully embraced the Western ideas of freedom and democracy. And they can never go back to the dictatorship and the, the totalitarianism that is the Taliban. So that's who the people are that we are rescuing. Um, to your first question, I, I've never been more sad about the vet, the veteran community and but also ne never more encouraged what happened around the fall of afghanistan where the veteran community all came together signal chats hey i know this guy does anybody know anybody that's on the ground let's try and find some proof about the documents of this person i have his passport i have his current siv application does anybody have any of his documentation about what unit he was in or any certificates of appreciation from the military all the things that provide a compelling bit of evidence for us to create a manifest of trusted allies. Uh, that all happened from the veteran community. And my God, I was so proud of our countrymen and Americans in that moment. Not but a few seconds later, I was so ashamed of veterans attacking veterans that were trying to do the right thing. And, uh, but it was such a small group. I don't even want to wa waste breath on it. You know, in, in, in confirmation bias, like if you hate me, I get it. You know, you, there's lots of reasons to hate me. And if you look for reasons to hate me, you'll find plenty of them. When I'm out doing things, I'm focusing on doing work. I'm not paying attention to trying to prevent you from finding reasons to hate me. I'm just trying to do the right thing. And, uh, and there was a lot of that and it was shameful, but now, you know, we're what, 10, 10 months removed from that. All of those people I know are so embarrassed and they're humiliated because they showed they showed who they really were and and now as as information has, is coming out about what we really did on the ground there how four of us moved 12,000 people in 10 days how we every single night were putting our lives on the line to save Americans and our allies like anybody that would say anything else but like dude I'm so proud that this is one of our guys and I'm so proud to be part of this community anybody that would say anything but that is just a pathetic troll you know and, I'm, and I pity you Right on. That's the world we live in. We just we we gravitate towards negativity and towards slamming somebody before we even get the full story. And that's that's kind of unfortunate. Uh, but I do like uh, the cut of your jib. Chapter 15 goes on to talk about how you're reapplying that same discipline to save our allies right now in Ukraine. Um, anything you want to share about the mission there? Uh, man, Ukraine is heartbreaking. If we do not do something, you know, I got back from Ukraine about two weeks ago. And, um, I, I was crying as I was coming out because I didn't want to leave. 
and because uh, they need help, they need they 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 need the soft model. They need they need green berets on the ground, or Russia is going to is successful and is going to be more successful in the land land grab that they're after. And um, you know, it's we can do two things at once, and uh, you know, like we can try and solve the immigration crisis at our border. We can try and source more baby formula. We can address inflation um, while we try and stop Russia from taking ground and getting closer to the NATO lines. Um, I think that America is capable of doing more than one thing. Mm, Right on. Last thing, speaking of America and domestic issues, is uh, the vet warrior culture that you belong to. And, and I don't mean to call it that with any sort of, you know, thing behind it. I just mean you guys are all warfighters, you're veterans, uh, you've all operated as operators on a tier one level, and you inspire so many Americans. Um, is there an unintended consequence to some of the doctrine and some of this, like, be awesome, be a warrior, be fit, no guns, know how to fight, know how to fix anything, be able to stand up to any danger. Is there a second order effect there that is also making us forget that it's okay to just be a really good dad, to be a really good employee, to be a really good craftsman, to be a really good boss? I'm I'm none of the things you guys are, but yet I think I'm a pretty bad a dad because i walk into home depot and i can find stuff and i can make something for my kids and i start a business so my kids can be involved in my family business am i not as bad as a warrior or is this warrior ethos that we're preaching just making people want to like go join meal team six and hike around the woods with weapons and think they can solve every crime wave in their little small town by amassing pickup trucks and guns and driving around looking for bad guys like you did when you were 11. Is there a unintended effect that could be dangerous from the warrior ethos? So, um, no, it's just the way that people perceive the warrior ethos. Like if you go to in my Instagram page, you're going to find the same number of, um, photos of me at the range or me at the gym or me with my kids, me riding motorcycles with my son, me going fishing with him, me hanging out with my daughter. But matter of fact, right there, that's the kitchen that she and I were playing at this morning as she and I were making breakfast. You know, like you will see the, see the same percentage of it. And if, if, if um, I'm, I'm going to push back about the warrior culture, when you look at a real warrior culture, you look at the samurai, you look at the Spartans, you know, you look at the Romans, you look, you look at the special forces, current special operations, um, culture you see really healthy balance you see guys that they want to be with their families they want to be outdoors they want to um you know samurai the art uh the the bonsai trees um the zen gardens um you know, like how to build a sword all of the the cathartic processes of balance and meditation you know then you go to the the greek and the romans and the spartans and you see philosophy you see art you know you see sculptures and uh the you can't have one without the other right like you can't if you make a a sword too hard and it becomes brittle and it shatters you know a really good sword is is a durable sword that is that can hold a fine edge but it has the balance of being able to serve multiple purposes you know it's it's more akin to a shovel than it is a sword in the way that the material is a good battle sword not 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 a kitchen knife i'm talking something you're going to take into war and um and it is a travesty of the vet bro. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an inaccurate portrayal of what the, the warrior culture looks like. You know, what it looks like is 
playing with dolls in the playroom and, you know, knowing how to braid hair. Like, guess what? I can braid hair pretty badass. I'm going to brag about that because I can. You know, like I have to go tomorrow to go pick up my son's new motorcycle because he just grew out of his, out of his 50. And he's like, Dad, I need like I don't want to ride a no-clutch motorcycle. I'm embarrassed. You know, can I have a 70? Can I have a clutch because I can jump 20 feet in the air? I'm like, you can't jump 20 feet in the air. He's like, you want to make a bet? I was like, okay, this is going the wrong way. Let's shift back to, <laughs> yes, you can have a clutch motorcycle. You know, like that that that's what the balance is, you know, and that's the beauty of the warrior culture is the balance. You know, it's the yin and the yang. I know I sound kind of like weird and, and, and artsy right now, but like, you know, if, if I look at all of my special operations friends, the really well-adjusted ones, the ones that have, you know, dozens of combat tours, man, they fiercely love their families. They fiercely love their wives. They fiercely love their moments, not at war. So that makes them good when they go to do war. Do you think then maybe the Americans absorbing some of their classes, some of their leadership things are not paying enough attention to that? Because I see all the time these guys out there that didn't serve that are all kitted up in McDonald's and they're all wanting to like intimidate and be super bad A, but are they just picking the wrong aspects of the totality of these le- of these people that they view on YouTube and only taking in the hundred proof part and not taking in the ice and the mixer that comes with the balance? Yeah, they're they're um, they're looking at, like the sp- the superficial Instagram fo- posts and not like going one layer deep to look at the integrity and moral and soul of the person. You know, like I I, I care more about like the faithfulness of the husband and the soft touch of the father. You know, and the the kind caring words of um, the brother. You know, and the grace that that person shows to to somebody that makes a mistake you know the way that they treat their colleagues and their teammates like those are the attributes that i'm looking for you know, those are the moments that i know like that's the dude i want to be in the foxhole with that's the dude i want to go to war with not the dude that has like this 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 like fancy larper kit i would i would much rather have the guy that i know has the integrity to do the right thing in the moment that i need him like that's the person that's going to show up and fight fiercely with me mm. And you said it all so well through the mistakes that you've made. You don't sugarcoat it. You talk about some of the darkest, dumbest you've ever done. And some of them are hilarious. And some of them you just empathize with and go, man, that's me. Yeah, you tell it all in the book, Scars and Stripes, an unapologetically American story of fighting UFC warriors, the Taliban, and myself. Uh, Just an honor to talk to you, man. Army veteran, Green Beret, UFC champ, whatever the hell you want to call yourself, or what everybody else calls you, you are just a Creekside kid from California who grew up wild, making a ton of mistakes, uh, really getting in his own way for decades, but uh, he turned out to be one hell of a great fighter. And, uh, man, just an all-around, all-star veteran. Tim Kennedy, an honor to talk to you, bro. Thanks, man. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.